Well, good evening and welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host for this weekly program. Thank you for joining us. We uh, sponsor this program every week that you hear on EWTN. We're coming to you from the Coming Home Network International Studios in Ohio. We do this program because we love Scripture, we love our Lord Jesus, and we love His Church. And our goal is to encourage you to study the Word and to study it in the context in which we've been given this inspired book, and that is, of course, the heart of the church. Jesus gave, called his apostles to, uh, to establish the church, his church, centered around St. Peter, and Jesus promised that he would give them the Holy Spirit, lead them into all truth. And a part of that gift that he gave them was, in fact, the guidance that led them in their writing of what became the New Testament. But the New Testament was a part of of the wider sacred tradition as the apostles' primary goal was to pass on the truth orally. And so we see that. And our guest tonight joining us on Deep in Scripture, uh, uh, Dr. Paul Thigpen, is going to discuss one of his favorite texts from Scripture that inspired him to follow the Lord Jesus. He's chosen the uh, section in chapter 13 of John where we hear this wonderful story, this amazing story, really, and we'll talk about why it's so amazing, of Jesus washing the feet of his hand-chosen apostles. And there are many aspects of this story that, uh, on the one hand, help us see an amazing side of our Lord Jesus. And when we see this amazing side of our Lord Jesus, part of the reason for this is because he is modeling for us how we are to follow him. And part of the passage says that this particular incident occurred at an important period in his ministry, in his life on this earth. It didn't happen early on. It happened in the last stages before his uh, death and the resurrection. And because of that, time, that place that it uh, appeared in his journey, it again has a special message to you and I as we live out our lives with the various responsibilities and sometimes the various um, platforms of praise and position and power that God has granted to us in our lives. Uh, you know, do, do we take these for granted? Do we allow ourselves to become bloated because of the great opportunities and gifts we've been given uh, and, and, and in the process fail to reach out in love to those around us. When we look at Jesus in this story, we see an amazing act by the very creator of the universe. Discuss this with, with us tonight, excuse me, is a, a great friend, Dr. Paul Thigpen, he's been on the program a number of times. He's been on the Journey Home program a number of times. He's one of the directors of the Coming Home Network International. He, uh, as it says in the bio that's posted on the website, deepinscripture.com, he's a former evangelical pastor. He's professor of theology at Southern Catholic College in Dawsonville, Georgia, the editor of the Catholic Answer magazine. Uh, he's also a best-selling author, award-winning journalist, and church historian. He's published, and Paul, I didn't even know this, amazingly, 35 books. That's, that's amazing. And a variety of genres and subjects. Uh, Dr. Thickman graduated from Yale University, 
summa cum laude and was later awarded the Robert W. Woodruff Fellowship at Emory University in Atlanta. That's where he earned his MA and PhD in historical theology. And it's I've always considered a pleasure to have Paul join us because he's a great scholar. He's also a wonderful uh, and very deep follower of Jesus Christ. And um, he, he's been through a lot. And I think the fact that he chose this passage says a lot about his own desire to be completely surrendered to Christ. And that's what we want to talk about tonight. Verses that inspire us to follow Jesus more deeply in our everyday lives. Now, if you go to deepinscripture.com, just a couple other points before we move on. You can find the phone number if you'd like to give us a call, 800-664-5110. Or our regular number is 740-450-1175. That's the phone number for the Coming Home Network International. Or you can send me an email at marcus at deepinscripture.com. And I need to mention that if you do click on our website, deepinscripture.com, you can watch this show live from our studio. Now, let me read this passage. It's 17 verses. It's printed on the website. You've heard this story. You may have been involved seeing it enacted on what at least we called, when I was a Protestant minister, Monday, Thursday, Holy Thursday of, of Holy Week. You may have been one of those invited to come forward to take off your shoes and socks and, and sit for the congregation as some in the congregation, maybe the pastor, enacted this story from the gospel. But what's really behind this story? And why did the Apostle John consider it so important to include in his gospel? Remember, he says later in John that there were lots of things he could have put in the gospel. There weren't enough books to uncover, uh, to include everything that Jesus did or said. So he was selective. Why this story? Well, let me read it, and then after the break, Dr. Thigpen will join us. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper, laid aside his garments, and girded himself with a towel. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. He came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not know now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part in me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, he who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but he is clean all over. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, You are not all clean. When he had washed their feet and taken his garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. 
If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you example, that you also should do as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host for this program, and you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. The Coming Home Network International is a nonprofit Catholic lay apostolate dedicated to helping Protestant clergy and laity come home to the Catholic Church. It was founded by Marcus Grodi, the host of this program, as well as the Journey Home television program on EWTN. If you are on the journey and interested in learning more about the Coming Home Network International or know someone who's thinking of becoming Catholic, please visit our website, www.chnetwork.org, or contact us at 1-800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host for this program. I'm coming to you over EWTN Radio, coming to you from the Coming Home Network International in Ohio. Um, Our guest tonight is Dr. Paul Thigpen, who's joining us from Georgia. Hello, Paul. Marcus, how are you, brother? Well, I'm great. And uh, in fact, I'm particularly uh, glad to join you on the program. Uh, In fact, this is the first time I think you've joined me from your new residence in Georgia. Oh, that's right. We're right at the, the foot of the Bridge Mountains up here in North Georgia. It's a beautiful, beautiful place. So we should get come. Are you suffering for Jesus there? <laughs> suffering for Jesus in the mountains, yeah. We just at the waterfalls yesterday for our 30th wedding anniversary. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. No, I'm joking because I know that's an absolutely beautiful place to live, and, uh, and you're teaching at Southern Catholic College. That's right. And uh, your, your son's going there this fall, right? That's right. It's a great place to be. I love the students. They, they love God. They're so eager to learn. Uh, you know, a college professor couldn't ask for more than that. You know, I noticed on the website, uh, just for the audience, they know that uh, there's your, uh, your picture and your bio, but I don't think we posted a, any kind of website if they wanted to connect to you and to find out more about what you do and what you write and, and about school you teach at. You want to say that for the audience? Well, sure. Um, my personal website is just paulsigpen.com. And uh, the college website is southerncatholic.com. So okay. both of them are easy to remember. All right. Great. Paul, why this passage? I mean, there's so much, of course, uh, but almost quickly you chose this passage. Why that? Oh, my. Well, I guess because it's startling to me, Marcus. That's probably the easiest way to put it. I, I should say real quickly, um, not only did I come have a conversion to the Catholic faith from the, an evangelical Protestant background, but had a double conversion because before that I converted from atheism to the Christian faith right. and um, grew up in a Christian home and I was familiar with this and so many Bible stories so it didn't really startle me then because it was too familiar but after six years as a teenager uh, as an atheist as a teenager when I finally came back to faith and started reading the Gospels and the whole scripture again I came to this passage and it just shocked me <laughs> it startled me you know why because I I mean, the whole Gospel of John, especially, is this, but 
because it, it shows us a virtue, a character in Christ, the Son of God that is also in the Father and, and God in his very essence. And, and it's a startling one, and it's the, the virtue of humility, that you know, the, the God of all things, the creator of all things, who's all-powerful, all-knowing, he's also all-humble. Uh, he was humble to, to be the Word made flesh that you know, starts out John's Gospel. He shows humility all through the Gospel. But here we are, right at this crucial point, before he humbles himself to die on the cross, as St. Paul puts it, he, he washes the feet. And, and it's as if St. John rubs it in when he says that Jesus, knowing that God put all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God, knowing that, he took off his robe and he washed their feet. I mean, what could be more startling than that? What you would expect is something like, knowing that he was, had come from glory and was going to glory, he told the apostles, hey, shape up, you know, wash my feet, I'm the guy from glory. But instead you get the very opposite. Yeah, the, down in verse, um, let me grab it here, uh, verse 7, Jesus says, what I am doing you do not know now, but afterward you will understand. Now, that verse echoes what Jesus will uh, admit often, and which some of the writers admit, and that is that during the time that Christ was with his apostles, they really didn't always understand what was going on. Oh, my goodness, yes. You yeah. know, he would tell them about what's, <laughs> what's going to happen when he gets into Jerusalem, and they just don't quite get it. And, you know, there he is in John 14 and 15 telling them things, and they just don't quite understand. And it's not that they're a bunch of dummies. It, it has to do with grace. You know, the grace is going to come upon them in a powerful way at Pentecost, for one thing, as well as after the resurrection. But and also that, you know, the, the holy nature of God is so contrary to our fallen nature that it's always surprising us, it's always confusing us, because he doesn't act the way we would act. <laughs> we don't, what we would predict, he doesn't do. And so how confusing it is, like you said, till someone's enlightened by grace, how confusing it is to see God do this. What do you mean the King of Kings was born in a stable? Yeah. What do you mean that uh, he washed feet? What do you mean he was he was executed like a common criminal or the worst of criminals? What do you mean all these things? What do you mean? And so he's always surprising us with his humility. And especially, you know, the ancient world, I, this is one of the things that struck me. During that time when I was an atheist, I, was, I looked a lot at, at classical culture, the, the Romans and the Greeks of the ancient period. And they... They had understood and recognized, appreciated, and admired many of the virtues that, that the Christian gospel presents to us, things like courage and uh, prudence or wisdom and moderation or control, uh, justice, all those things. But the one thing you don't find in the pagan writers, even the most virtuous of them, is any real appreciation that I can find anyway of humility. They kind of despise it. It confused them. And yet... God comes along and he invades that ancient world and says, no, humility is, is the ground in which all the other virtues grow. Mm -hmm. Humility is who I am, and it's who you'll have to be if you're going to imitate me. Let's look at it. There's a bunch of things in this passage that all base around that, what you've just said, is this, this virtue of, of humility, which, of course, our Lord Jesus would have had to the infinite degree, uh, which is interesting because as the creator of the universe... Uh, the all-powerful, all-knowing, omni omnipotent, omniscient, yet this issue of humility um, to allow himself, as it says in Philippians 2, 
to humble himself, even to the form of a servant, um, is really beyond our ability to truly understand. We think we do, and we think we try and imitate that, but, but you know, we are sinful. And just about the time we think we're the most humble person in the world, we, we, you know, we've just sinned just by the thought of that. And, and a couple things that I'd like to point out, and again, Paul, as I do in this program, really I want you to, to have a lead in this passage. But so things struck me as I was thinking about this, as you were reflecting on it, that way in back in verse 1, um, everything is, is coming to the end. Um, you know, the, the story. We're, we're, we're approaching the last act. And Jesus knows this. It's before the Feast of Passover. So, I mean, this, it's all coming to an end here. He knows this. When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, and having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So we see this intimacy that he has, but he knows that it's the end. And isn't that one of the aspects that makes this whole thing so amazing, is that he doesn't have a lot of time left. There's so much to do, so much to say. And with what's what he's going to face, and he knows it. And he knows what that's going to feel like. And it won't be long, in an hour or so, when he'll be on his knees sweating droplets of blood. Yet, he did this. I mean, that's part of the amazement of it, isn't it? He, he did, and to me what, what strikes me in the passage is that he did it because he was so, had such perfect knowledge of himself. And, and the saints talk about this a lot, you know, self-knowledge and the, knowing really who we are, where we've come from, where we're going, uh, what God's call is in our lives, uh, what his purpose for us is, that all those things are so important if we're going to do the right thing, if we're going to respond correctly to the will of God, even in adversity, and if we're going to, to, to meet our end well. And, and I think one of the things that means so much to me about this passage is that Jesus is so perfectly aware that he's come from God, that he's going to God, that all things have been put into his hands. And because of that, he can open his hand and, and drop all, you know, go of all things. Yeah. He's giving up his very life and everything with that. And if he'd, you know, if he weren't so confident of that, how could he have done such a thing? Not to say that, that there wasn't a, you know, an agony in the garden, but nevertheless, this, in these last moments, he's giving us such an example. He gave the apostles such an example of that, that to... To know to do what God has called us to do, to face what we're called to face, to be what we're called to be, we have to have a firm grasp on where we're where we've come from and we're headed in the sense of coming from God and going back to God. It's losing sight of that goal that causes us to go astray in every in every way. Which is usually a, a kernel of self of our yeah. self yeah. focus. That. Well, think about the passage from Hebrews. That's not the one I really love. I almost chose that one instead. Where he's talking about Jesus, that that um, the author and perfecter of our faith, yeah. who despising the scene, you know, setting his face toward the joy that was before him. And what was that joy? It was going back to the Father. That doing that, he was able to despise the shame, endure the cross, and enter into glory. You know, and go through the humiliation, enter into glory. Why? Because he had his eyes set on the goal. And you think of people being a running a race, if they don't have their eyes on the goal line, they're liable to get distracted and go out into the stadium or something, you know, into the seat. That's the kind of race he ran. Well, this theme is often, uh, you know, there in 
all the New Testament writings, you know, Peter, you know, sinking into the water when he takes his eyes off of Jesus, uh, St. Paul using the image of the runner, St. Paul also talking about forgetting what lies behind that press onward, you know, putting off, putting on the new. He says both in Ephesians and Galatians and Philippians, all those themes are there, all in imitation of Jesus, as just you said. I mean, he's focused, but in the process of that focus, he doesn't become so self-focused at all that he doesn't really set himself as a model for others. I, I love, the, again, this is this is the uh, the emphasis of, of the Apostle John, isn't it? The end of verse 1, I mean, there's all kinds of images of Jesus. He could have said, having taught his own, he taught them to the end. Um, having chastised the Pharisees, he chastised them to the end. Uh, you know, having pointed out the... the the lack of faith of so many, he pointed it out to the end. It was all these other facets of his, of his character that he either did or could have done, but John focuses on love. And you know, isn't that really the kernel of, of John's whole understanding of Jesus and why he would do this very act in chapter 13? Oh, it is. It's, uh, it's all through the Gospel. It's all through the, the letters of John. Um, and love, of course, in a very powerful way of understanding it, not the, the, the kind of facile, sometimes misleading way we use the word love, but that that desire, willingness, and uh, commitment to to the best of the one that you love, to what's best for that one, no matter what, what it may cost you, that kind of love. And he knows that to fulfill his love for his the ones the ones that God's given him he's, and for the whole world, he's got to die the most horrible of death. And it's love that brings them to the cross. We're going to take a break, Paul. When we get back, I'd like you to address a question. And that is that this, uh, this act that Jesus does, this, this whole scenario, is so Catholic in many ways. But one of the ways is from my more Calvinist Protestant background, sometimes we saw the faith very cerebral. Mm-hmm. not involving the body. But in this, we see, you know, the fullness of the, the whole person being ministered to. Let's look at that when we get back. Yes. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host. I'm joined by Dr. Paul Thigpen, and you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. next time on Life on the Rock. Her son was brutally killed in a random act of violence, but she chose love and forgiveness over hatred and death. Tune in when Rachel Muha joins Doug and Father Mark to talk about her ministry for inner city kids. That's on the next Life on the Rock, only on EWTN. Life on the Rock is seen and heard around the world on EWTN. For dates and times in your area, log on to EWTN.com. the compelling journey of one man who became a Church of Christ minister and found himself entering Catholic Church. Bruce Sullivan shares his conversion story in his new book titled Christ in His Fullness. In this book, he communicates a passionate love for Christ and the inexhaustible treasures of grace found in the Catholic Church. Perhaps you too will discover the same riches in the fullness of Christ. To order a copy of this book for yourself or a friend, please visit our website 
www.chnetwork.org or call us at 1-800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host. I'm joined by Dr. Paul Thigpen tonight. We're looking at John chapter 13, the story about Jesus walking, excuse me, washing the uh, feet of his disciples. Paul, um, it's true, Jesus doesn't have a lot of time yet. He knows that. And it is true that he's going to spend a lot of this evening teaching. The rest of chapter 13 and 14 and 15 and 16 and 17 I presume all happened in that last night together in the upper room and a lot of teaching going on. And so there's some cerebral aspect to these last moments together. But yet before he does any of the cerebral, he does this act that involves so much of the body. Talk about how that's so Catholic. Well, you know, it's, uh, it reminds me of other incidents in the life of our Lord where he spits in mud, spits in, in dirt and makes mud and puts it on the the eyes of the blind man so that he can see other things like that where he it's so clear first of all that he was in the flesh that the early heretics called the this who said he would wasn't really human because he uh, god wouldn't stoop to such a thing uh, it's an affirmation against them yes he really did stoop to such a thing to take on a human body and and that he he got dirty and had to bathe and he bathed others so first of all, it's an affirmation of that. But second, an affirmation that, as you noted before, the, the break, that, that we are human, that we are physical as well as spiritual creatures, that that so much of what comes to us, the grace that comes to us, often comes to us in a, in a physical way, through physical vessels, through physical vehicles. And, of course, that's what sacrament's all about, not that foot washing is a sacrament. But even in that, you know, I think it's interesting, Marcus, I, there's that fascinating exchange between St. Peter and Jesus, where St. Peter says, oh, you'll never wash my feet, and Jesus says, if I don't, you have no part of me, and Simon Peter says, well, not just my feet, but my hands and my head, and <laughs> Jesus says, well, he who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but he's clean all over, and I remember just struggling with that, um, you know, even as, as an evangelical pastor, what in the world does that mean, <laughs> and you know, I've come to see that one very possible interpretation, it may have several interpretations that are possible, but is that when he's speaking of bathing, that he's referring to baptism. Mm-hmm. And that uh, when that, that you aren't baptized, again, if you've already been baptized, you've been bathed, there's no need to do that again, but you do need confession. You do need to come to have your feet cleansed, so to speak, by the yeah. sacrament of confession. And that's a good image because when we've been bathed and we're clean, in their day, you know, they, um, uh, you know, they didn't have the, the nice shoes that, especially this group of folk, uh, they wore sandals in a dusty environment, and so again, the feet were constantly every day being clean. Although they they didn't have a nice running hot shower in their little house that they would jump in every morning, so they probably didn't bathe as often. And the point is just what you said. You know, baptism takes away original sin, and then the day by day accumulation of our of, of our failures and our faults and our bad our habits, actual, yeah. venial, you know, that we constantly need this, but we don't have to be baptized all over again. Right, right. And, and that's a great image there. Um, but, and also, you know, this idea, and the amazingness of this, that he is doing 
something. We're, we're accustomed to hearing the story. Whether we could repeat it or not, almost everyone listening to this broadcast has heard this story, mm-hmm. one way or the other. But when this happened, in verse 4, when he rose, laid aside his garments, and girded himself with a towel, the visual impact must have been amazing to his apostles. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, I'm, I'm guessing, had never seen this done by Jesus, didn't expect it, um, though he had, they have seen Jesus, of course, humble himself in the touching of a leper, the, you know, the, the ministering to women, which was not normal in their culture. Uh, but this act, um, you know, had to, as like you said, had to be very amazing to them seeing their Lord and Savior. Well, they wouldn't have said that that way, excuse me, but at least... But the rabbi even, you know, usually a lowly servant would do this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And if there was no servant present, as I understand it, if it were a rabbi and you know a teacher and his circle of followers, then one of them would do it. But the last person to do it would be the rabbi himself. And and even, I mean, you know, in, in ancient Jewish culture, the um, even men, you, there was a, a, a strong sense of modesty about them, about undressing. That kind of thing. And so even in that regard, which we'll see again on the cross when Jesus is stripped to be crucified, he's, he's humiliating himself. He's humbling himself. He's not just washing their feet. He took his clothes off to do it, wrapped himself in the towel and took the towel off to do it, and wraps the towel back around himself with all the dirt and the dust on it. I mean, when you start thinking about the details of it, oh, my goodness. He really, he, he humbled himself. One of them should have done it, you know, <laughs> should have jumped up and done it. But he did it. And and every little detail that John mentions, like the taking off the clothes and wrapping himself with a towel, and and then it says that when he's done and put his garments back on, he resumed his place. Isn't that interesting? Because he would have, the way they would have, you know, been seated around a table, they, they would, he would have been at the head. I mean, it wasn't, you know, they were in the floor in kind of a circle, but there would have been a special place for the rabbi that would have been his place of honor. And he goes back to that place having done all that. And that would, to me, just emphasize it even more. I, who am your master and teacher, I've done this for you. Now what are you going to do? <laughs> you got to do it for each other. And and instead of being cerebral, like you said, I mean, he could have just said, okay, you're supposed to serve one another, and he did that kind of thing. But how many, you know, they, they could, after he's gone, they could have argued for years, well, what did he really mean by serve? I mean, <laughs> think about your, you know, seminary friends or yep. you know, theology <laughs> professors. Let's... Let's pause the meaning of serve. <laughs> and and never get around that, to serve. Right, and never get around to it, or at least to discern, uh, define it in a way that, that it's only the kind of things they want to do rather than the things that are uncomfortable. He cuts through all that, and he just starts around and says, okay, I'm going to do the most humbling thing, the most distasteful thing. I'm going to show you what service is. I'm going to just do it. And ever after, when you try to define what serve means, you're going to have to do it in light of what I have done. It's powerful. Uh, he says to Peter, when he Peter asks, um, how often do I forgive my neighbor? Mm. Um, you know, seven times. And Jesus essentially uses a number that implies there's no limit to the, to the amount you forgive someone. Yeah. Uh, there's another place where he says that you don't just love your friend, you, you love your enemy. Uh, you know, often he is expanding beyond their usual expectation of giving, of forgiveness, of love. Oh, yeah. 
and here we see it in terms of service. You know, it, it's a it's a complete. There's 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 no there's no there's no place you stop. You know, folks often will try to com- contrast the old test, old covenant, and the new covenant in a way that talks about how well you know now we're much more free and we don't have this all these demands and these laws and that kind of thing. Well, the truth is the new covenant is always more demanding than the old covenant. <laughs> you put the parallel requirements of the two covenants by each other, and he, which Jesus himself does in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you've heard it say, um, do, do not, not to hate, or, or you've heard it say, right. you know, to, hate your, to, to do kind to your friend. I'm telling you, you've got to love everybody. Or you've heard it said, um, you know, you can only give a woman divorce after certain thing you have to law you have to fill i'm telling you you know marriage is forever you've heard this i've told i'm telling you this he always he if he cuts away the law of the old covenant it's only to show the bedrock on which it's built and to say this this whole thing belongs to you in a way what he's doing here is doing just what you said you've heard it and maybe seen it demonstrated what servanthood is Mm. let me show you what it really is yeah and uh, of course, this becomes this this powerful image of what they're going to see portrayed before them uh, within 24 hours, when he is again stripped down in the same way and laid on them on a cross before them. Um, and you know, isn't I mean, isn't that exactly also why he's doing this? Because when he says, "You will understand." that isn't it and the cross that this image really comes alive oh yeah i mean they ain't seen nothing yet at this point <laughs> yeah. compared to what they'll be seeing in the next 24 hours and not only that marcus another point here that and john again he's so careful to i love john i just love the gospel of john i used to teach a weekly bible study at our the cathedral in savannah my home parish where i was we spent over six years six and a half years <laughs> on this gospel we even we didn't, you know, <laughs> we got it to the end, but we only got the surface of it. It's so powerful. But John, every time he put detail in, there's a reason for it. And so in the midst of all this, he makes a point there in verse 2, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. And then again at the end where Jesus mentions that, you know, not all of you are clean. He's making a point here. Jesus didn't just wash the feet of the 11. He washed Judas' feet, and he knew what was about to happen to him, and that Judas was the instrument by which it would happen. Hey, let's bring that point right to today. What does that tell us about our lives with the people we live with? Oh, my. Well, I mean, it's to go back to what he said about the, you've got to love your enemies. And this man was his enemy. This man was about to have the most cause the most horrible thing in the world to happen to him. And he loved them to the end. He, washed, he still washed his feet. And if that's the case, that he would do that with the, this most horrible of enemies and betrayers, what are we supposed to do with the people who may offend us or annoy us or inconvenience us, but they haven't even gone nearly that far? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, again, the ultimate washing of his feet and the ultimate washing of the person that so betray him sets a boundless limit on our... Uh, on our call to do the same and it's not easy uh, it's easy for you and I on the radio to point fingers or to set up standards that are not easy for us to follow I know that uh, but but yet this is what Jesus has given to us as the model for our lives 
uh, he says, for I have given you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. Um, and you know what's, what encourages us is that he attaches a promise to that. Do you see that in verse 17? If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. The same you know, kind of, kind of formula, so to speak, a word formula that he uses in the Beatitudes. Mm-hmm. Blessed are they who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are they, who, the peacemakers. Blessed are they who, all those things. He's, he's saying there will be a blessing on us if we do these things. That's a wonderful promise. You know, there's an interesting angle to that verse 17 that I hadn't really uh, noticed until we're looking at it here. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Um, it, it implies this responsibility that comes with our knowledge mm, mm-hmm. to carry out our faith. Uh, it, it might be different if someone doesn't know it. In other words, be invincibly ignorant. But it's not up to us to judge them. It's uh, up to us to tell them the, the fullness of the faith, to evangelize, to tell them about their need. And so in, in telling them how they are to live in humility, he gives us a model on how to do that so that others will understand. It isn't mere words, it's doing. Both are important. And so we see in this a little bit of what Paul will say later to, to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, too, right? Yeah. He says, let me turn to it real quickly. Um, although, Paul, I know you probably have it memorized. Where, where Paul says, what you have heard from me before many witnesses and trust a faithful man who will be able to teach others also. We have this passing on what Jesus is doing to these apostles, and they are to pass it on to others so that they, these others can then pass it on to others. And that's how we've got it today. That's the change. That's the, the succession of faith, the generations of faith. And it's not just words. It's, it's actions. I mean, it's, that's... Often when I talk about the, the Catholic notion of a sacred tradition alongside sacred scripture, of what it is is that you know when we talk about tradition, we're talking about something oral and heard, but also we're talking about something enacted, an enacted tradition, uh, enacted truth. That's how the liturgy comes down to us, for instance, because if there weren't all these liturgy books in the you know the time of the scripture and after that, how did people know how to have a mass? How did people know how to? Uh, to do any of, of the sacraments, how did they know to do so much in moral theology when you didn't just have books or the New Testament wasn't even written yet? It was enacted faith. It was that's part of the old tradition, and so this is a very important part of the the enacted tradition that he did this. He humbled himself and did it. If you can combine verse seven and verse seventeen, verse seven says, "Jesus answered him, What I am doing, you do not know now.'" But afterwards you will understand. And then verse 17, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. To me, the combination of those verses, especially looked in the context of the history of the church, the history of understanding spiritual growth, uh, you know, our, our need to continually growing in union with Jesus, never arrive at, at some point in our spiritual journey where we don't need to grow anymore. That's a, a constant journey from, from not knowing to knowing to understanding and then carrying it out. It's this journey. And, and we see that in the lives of the apostles. And we're seeing it at a stage right now. We know what they will, will 
will do, right? And I'm going to take a break, Paul, and I want, when we come back, I'd like you to talk about helping our audience live this out. This is a journey that we need to continually go through. This isn't a one-time act that Jesus did one time or that we do one time every year at Monday, Thursday. How do we live this out as we seek to follow Jesus in our day-by-day walks? You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, joined tonight by Dr. Paul Pippen, and you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. Mark your calendars and pack your bags. The Global Catholic Network is bringing you another EWTN family celebration. On August 8th and 9th, we'll be in Birmingham, Alabama, celebrating this year's theme, Rejoice in Hope. Join some of our most popular hosts, Marcus Grodi, Raymond Arroyo, Barbara McWigan, Father Wade Menezes, The Donut Man, and more. We'll have inspirational talks, Holy Mass, Family Corner, a kid's concert by The Donut Man, and a live taping of a special Crossing the Goal with Danny Abramowitz. For more information on this free event, log on to EWTN.com or call 205-271-2989. The EWTN Family Celebration, August 8th and 9th in Birmingham, Alabama. We'll see you there. Here's that number again for more information, 205-271-2989, or log on to EWTN.com. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grody, your host. I'm joined by Dr. Paul Thigpen. We're looking at John chapter 13. Paul, I, uh, I want us to talk a little bit about about moving on in this journey, this spiritual journey. And it seems to me that in the verses that that I mentioned before the break, combining verse 7 and 17, we see this progression from not knowing to hearing to knowing to understanding and to doing, to carrying it out. And that's this regular journey we go through. It reminds me of that very famous parable of the sower where you've got the four soils. Every single one of them heard, but only the last soil understood and received the blessings. And so we it, it, we almost see the same thing. These people hear, they partially receive, but then they don't understand, and so they don't do, and so they fall away. Talk about this need for us to be vigilant in our walk with Jesus. Yeah, I think it, it goes back to some of the things we said at the, the beginning of the program, this, this notion of, of self-knowledge. Um, yeah, when you look at the fathers and mothers of the desert, in the early centuries of the church, and they talk about the church walk, how to come closer to God, how to be more like Christ. They they talk a great deal about humility, and about how humility in part comes from knowing yourself. Um, and that sounds like a self-centered thing, but it's it's not at all in the way that they they mean it. That and we go back to the passage where Jesus, knowing where he come from, where he was going, he knew himself. He was able to do this. And you know the the pride is what called the, caused the devil to fall. And it's behind so much of our our struggle and our brokenness. And I, you know, I would say pride, and I can see it in my own life. Pride is is at the root of so many of our sins and so many of our failings. And so, the, one of the best things we can do is to learn from Jesus to be humble. And part of that means getting to know ourselves, but also getting to know Him. It's, it's kind of a dialectic that goes back and forth between those two. Saint Catherine talked about that a great deal about dwelling in the cell of knowledge of God, but in the cell, also in the cell of self-knowledge, that we see God for who he is, and the more we see him, 
the more we see ourselves. I, I think the perfect example in Scripture is Isaiah. He says, you know, I, was, I saw the Lord, and he was high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple, and the angels cried, Holy is the Lord. And then the next thing he says is, Woe is me, I am sinful man. And in seeing God's glory, he saw his own smallness. In seeing God's holiness, he saw his own sin. In seeing all the virtues in God, he saw the, you know, the vices, the failings in himself. And not in a way that was, you know, that he would just um, roll around in that, you know, <laughs> and, and just, oh, woe is me all the time. But, but that we, we've really got to see who we are. We've got to see our failings. And once we do, then it's like clearing the ground. That's like God getting, that's getting the rocks out of the garden so that God can start planting the good stuff. You know, there's a double-edged sword in this act by Jesus. It says in, in I think it's in Hebrews, uh, that he was tempted in every way but without sin. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong on that. I forget right now I'm pulling a, a, you know, an, a, a, an elderly moment here. But uh, Yes, I don't remember the verse numbers, but yes, in Hebrews. You know, but this idea that uh, you know, when we talk about pride, we talk about selfish, self-centeredness, and we would immediately say, well, of course, Jesus is God, and he's perfect, and he didn't feel that way. Well, wait a second. In the mystery of his divine humanity, the com- combination of that and, and how that fits together we're, is beyond our ability to understand, yet we know that, as it says in Philippians 2, that, that one of the reasons he was raised, to glo- raised back to glory was because of his obedience. And so in that, there was a... F- a certain freedom for him. But in this moment, we see the two-edged sword of this humility. Part of the humility is his acting to show us how to experience humility. But a part of it was his own growing in humility through the act itself and the importance of that for us. I'm kicking myself because you mentioned the Desert Fathers and, and a book that I wish I had open in front of me is a wonderful book called The Philokalia, which is a collections of writings from the Eastern Church. And there's one section in that that talks about the great danger in sin of self-esteem. And it, it's amazing, you know, I'm sure it was written many, several hundreds of years ago, but it talks about this danger and sin of self-esteem. And, and it runs so contrary to our world today because even the best of writers uh, often talk about this need for us to to improve our self-esteem. It's everywhere. But the spiritual writers say that it's a danger and, and a sin to be focused on self-esteem. And in the midst of that, the writer who's writing to monks says, well, what do you do to cure or to cure yourself of or to prevent self-esteem? The main cure is to serve the poor. So we see in this Jesus, any temptation that the devil may have been throwing into his mind during this time that he's approaching this great moment, that he is doing the very thing we need to do to experience the blessings of humility and that serve the poor. Oh, you know, all the great spiritual advisors say if you're fighting with a particular vice, the way to cure it is to do the opposite. <laughs> do, the, do the thing of the, the corresponding virtue. And so if you're struggling with pride, then the thing to do is to do that thing that humbles or even humiliates you. You know, the good thing, not a bad thing. But And so in, in the case of the, the spiritual advisor you're talking about, serving the poor can do that because you, you have to get down in the dirt and the grime, and, and often there's not a lot of gratitude. And, 
you know, or that kind of thing. You don't think there is any way, and you don't see always the the consequences of what you do, and it it can be very hum. It's humbling. It does humble us, and and that's you know, golly, when the scripture says, "Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and He will lift you up." That's so important. And and when the scripture says, "Either you humble yourself, or God will humiliate you," it's um, to me that's that's just so important, and it's an important lesson. We we just don't hear enough, I think, about humility. It, it is. It's the soil of all the other words. It's, the word humility is related to our word humus, soil. And to, to be humble is, in part, to have a, a, a right notion of yourself, you know. It's not that you're supposed to say, oh, I'm terrible, I'm terrible, and in a way that you're not. But you have an accurate vision of yourself, who you are, where you come from, where you're going. And, and make sure it's broad enough that even when you see the gifts and you rightly discern them, you know that, as St. Paul said, is there anything you have that you haven't been given? And so you see that bigger picture, then the humility comes because you say, yeah, no matter how great or talented I am in this particular area, it's a gift. I didn't earn it. You know, the um, I'd like us to leave some thoughts for our audience on what we can do if we feel moved to uh, imitate Jesus in our relationship starting tomorrow, maybe starting tonight. What can we do? Uh, as opposed to going out and taking off somebody's shoes and socks that we see on the street and washing their feet. I mean, that's not necessarily the only way this should be carried out. What, where can we begin in a very real way with those around us to practice this humility? Well, I think one of the, the great symptoms of arrogance is that uh, when, when people are arrogant, they don't listen to others. They're too full of talking about themselves or their dreams or their plans or their opinions or whatever. And I think one of the great disciplines of humility is listening, really listening. And that's one thing we can do right away. If we want to humble ourselves with the people around us, to take the time, lay aside our concerns, our fo- you know, self-focus, and to focus on another person around us and really listen to what they have to say and ask them questions, try to find out what is it they're struggling with, what kind of prayers do they need, How, what, what could you do to help them? And I'd say that's a great place to begin. It seems like a simple thing, and yet with our words, to humble ourselves by being silent and listening to someone else, really listening from the heart. For some people, that's merely the gift of eye contact. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I mean, we can become so busy in the world with all the things that we go on that we don't even take... The, it's, a, it's a sign of humility uh, to give someone the gift of eye contact, the gift of our attention undivided attention just yeah. just as you're saying um, what about like in the image of Jesus washing the feet of Judas talk about that well I, you know just the things that I always think in domestic terms probably <laughs> you know, that's where <laughs> so much of our sure uh, our maybe our biggest problems in America are right and, uh, there yeah. you know so I, I took the garbage out tonight <laughs> I would rather my son had done it he wasn't here but, you know, sometimes there are things that you do as, in terms of chores or something for someone else or in their place because they're tired or whatever, even though you're tired. And that can be a humbling thing where you just, you just do something for somebody else that you may not feel like doing and you may even be too tired to do, but you do it in order to serve them because you know it's, it's going to mean something to them or it's going to relieve them of a burden that, that you don't want them to have to carry. You know, I'm reminded of that verse in uh, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 7, where 
Paul's talking about the Christians suing each other. Mm. You know, I mean, they're just taking each other to court and the bad witness of the community, blah, 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 blah. And he says in verse 7, to have lawsuits at all with one another is defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud and that even your own brethren. Taking that out of the context of the court, this idea of why not rather be wronged? That's a part of humility, is accepting that suffering that we received, we received from even those closest to us who maybe intend to hurt us or don't intend to hurt us, and in our sensitivity goes over the edge. Why not rather be wronged? Especially, you know, in the case of words. I don't mean to get back to words so much, but the uh, again, one of the Desert Fathers talked about how, and one one way to think of humility is to he he went into an old pagan temple or something with his disciples. And he picked up stones and started throwing them at this statue. <laughs> they said, are you crazy? What are you doing? And he says, no, that the statue is giving us an example of, of humility and other things. He said, I'm throwing stones at it. I'm insulting it. And it's not doing a thing. It's just taking it. And he said, that's a good thing for us to do. Well, let me add just one last word then. As, uh, that when Jesus gave the Great Commission to his disciples at the end of Matthew, the, the first word he said was go. In other words, we've got to act. And the best way to show this humility as well to experience the blessings of humility is to do it. Not just talk about it, but do it. And we can begin tomorrow or tonight with those closest to us. Dr. Paul, thank you. Oh, Marcus, thank you. What a pleasure. God bless you and all your listeners, brother. Same to you and your family, and I look forward to having you on the program again. And all of you who have joined us, I hope that this has been encouragement to you. Let's pray for one another. We're not in this alone. We need the help of the Holy Spirit to help us by grace to live out what Christ calls us to do in his name. God bless you. See you next week.